The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Spirit Matters, where we host conversations with a diverse range of wise and insightful spiritual teachers, scholars, and other experts to help you along on your own spiritual path. Uh, If you're tuning in for the first time, I would uh, recommend going uh, into the archive. There's by now 25 or 30 really good conversations. And, uh, if you're familiar with my the previous iteration of Spirit Matters that I co-hosted with Dennis Ramundi for several years, that's still alive as an archive that you can access for free at spiritmatterstalk.com. So today we have another wise and wonderful guest, Kimberly Braun. <laughs> Kimberly. You spent 10 years as a nun in a Carmelite monastic order and then moved on, for reasons we'll explore, to pursue a uh, multidimensional spiritual path and to uh, guide others on their journeys to the divine in a number of ways, as a public speaker, as an author, a meditation coach, a Reiki master, a theologian, an ordained minister, and a workshop and retreat leader, and an organizer of online gatherings that we'll talk about. Um, Her journey is described in her book, Love Calls, Insights of a Former Carmelite Nun. And her latest book is Miracles in the Naked Light, a provocative Mm -hmm. title that I'll ask her about. And she has an online program coming up in early January 2024 called Discover the Self, which we'll also talk about. Welcome, Kimberly. Thanks so much for having me, Phil. It's really great to be with you. And just to plant a little seed for all you listeners, Phil is one of the contributors on that online summit. (laughs) And I uh, urge you to register for it despite my presence. (laughs) There's some very good people contributing to that. Um, 
Kimberly, let's begin where I always do on on the podcast, which is uh, the guest spiritual origin story. So uh, yours is fascinating. Uh, Tell us uh, an overview of your journey, but um, include, please, what drew you to the monastic life and, of course, what led you to leave it? It's it's such a, a great series of questions. I know that when I left in 2001, those were the two questions I got all the time. And I was not prepared at that time to be able to speak with a simplicity to it or a satisfying breadth to those answers. But over the years, uh, I've been able to find my language around these things. And for me, it all began consciously when I was little. Uh, When I was about five years old, I was having experiences that were unveiling a deeper essential reality to me. And part of my language around that and that framework were these experiences that everything is being and becoming in God on the essence level. And I had an idea of what that word God meant then that has changed dramatically now through my experience. But having those experiences when I was little and I was so blessed, like I would have a moment of pause in life, a deep existential pause. And out of nowhere, it would seem like time would stop. And for me, my language is the beloved would step in because the beloved didn't want me to have any delay in having a deeper understanding of what was happening in life, which had a fruit to it. So my experiences were filled with bliss and joy and that, but some of the insights had the fruit of joy, had the fruit of stability, had the fruit of a a certain certainty in the unchanging parts of life, like life and death, and why elements of suffering arise for us, and all sorts of things like that. So I was experiencing this as a young child in ways that gave my heart happiness. And as young children do, when something makes us happy, we usually just want more of it. That's right. I mean, sure. As adults, we do give it me, too. Give me, give me, give me. Totally. So, <laughs> so I had this, this orientation towards, wow, that's the adventure. The adventure is discovering who I am. The, just, the adventure is discovering this God source. The whole adventure of life is happening for these reasons and in these ways. And with that, I tended to have a radical quality of being willing to jump into the unknown not a hundred percent but pretty consistently when something confusing would happen there is something in me that as a quality i had the capacity to surrender and say what is this from a place of um openness and confidence that i would receive guidance so those those i think were really amazing gifts of grace in my childhood that then have provided a worldview and um, capacity and an interest and a curiosity that's all harnessed towards this and has really been the container in which I do everything. 
So we happen to be Catholic and we happen to be more of a grassroots charismatic church. So gifts of healing were prominent. You know, my family did laying on of hands and prophecy and uh, tongues, but not as we weren't as interested in that. And community was very, very important to us as a family. So we had these building blocks that were even supportive to me, even if I never talked about my experiences. So I never confided in my mom or dad. Hmm. Um, it didn't occur to me to do that. And I'm probably, probably lots of children are that way, but there were certain support systems in place that were unspoken encouragements to me to open even more to what my path is and was then. Uh, even I, I went through some tremendous dark nights in my late teens. And I would say that had I not had a breakthrough in my late teens, I probably would not be here. The dark night was so tremendous. And it was a mix of uh, unresolved trauma with a certain um, collective consciousness that to be passionate is not spiritual. Mm. I, I came into a real deep doubt of who I am because I'm, I'm very, very passionate about everything, about life, about ideas, about relationships. Um, and I doubted that that was good, that I was good. Mm. And I went into this place that was like a living hell for two and a half years. And I had this major breakthrough that dissolved that. I had an out-of-body experience that dissolved the, the misconception. But I think it was my orientation that I'm, I'm held and guided by an ineffable, indescribable source that even gave the ability for me to go so deep into darkness and in some hidden way, kind of know I was being held even there, even though I had really separated away from myself psychologically and emotionally. Uh, with that breakthrough, I then went on an even deeper journey to understand the parts of me and the parts of what it means to be a human being and how we grow and come into wholeness. But when that breakthrough happened, my mystical experiences went from consistent to all consuming. Mm. I was having my crown chakra, which I didn't know that was that <laughs> back then, <laughs> would open up almost every day. And I would get this whoosh of white blue presence that would go through my whole body. And in the beginning, I couldn't stay standing. I would like swoon or, uh, and then I would be taken into these states that were pretty dramatic for long periods of time. And I, I was immersed in a honeymoon period, totally honeymoon, where everything spoke about the beloved, right? Every book, every book, every word, everything was a miracle. Everything was synchronistic. Every, I, I couldn't get away from this being pursued by this beloved. Uh, so that lasted for about four years. I was kind of like the Eckhart Tolle sitting on the park bench kind of person. I mean, I worked for four I mean, years, though. Yeah, for a long time, a long time. And, and during that time, when I was looking for a spiritual mentor or a director, uh, I couldn't find anybody 
that I could actually share what was going on and they had any grasp of what was happening. But my framework was only Catholic. I didn't understand the broader uh, resources. And I lived in California. So I was like right near the Zen Center in San Francisco. I was right near a lot of really great resources. Uh, but I didn't know, I didn't think to sure. look anywhere. And so I gave up on having anybody to talk to. And it was the very next day that my roommate put the autobiography of Teresa of Avila hmm. to my hands. And I sat on the couch, Phil, and I wept. I was reading it because what was happening in her was what was happening in me. And immediately I had a friend and it opened this whole Carmelite group wow. of people. So that's how I entered the <clears throat> monastery was really simple. It was, I was on fire with love. My life was consumed in this path and all my friends became Carmelite. So it was like natural. Like, why wouldn't I go be with my friends? Mm -hmm. Okay, let's flash forward then 10 years. Yeah. Spent 10 years as a monastic. Why did you leave? So um the the truest answer is that it was the next step in my love affair. So that's that's the truest, but that's not very satisfying, right? Um, but it does point to something, and then I can give you the little story that goes with it. To me, that's very important. When when we drop into who we are and we grow in the integration of, it's all about this internal essential self. And at that time, I would have said union with God. It's not quite my language anymore. But when we are there, that's the one unchanging in our lives. And, and life changes a lot. Um, who our friends are, where our passion is, uh, what form our spiritual path takes, like what's the construct. A lot of those things change a lot of times in life or even elements within them. I was so in that essential place that I was really free for some of that change to happen that I didn't know was going to happen. When I took solemn vows in 1995, I did it with all my heart. I did not look back. I did not doubt. I didn't look in another direction. I gave my all. And from there on out, energetically, I looked at the world only as a Carmelite. I, I just wouldn't have played in thinking about other ideas for my life. But life was working and tilling my inner soil. And what, what started to happen is as I moved out of formation and into the, the normative way the life is lived, inevitably, there are other parts to the lifestyle. Like I was starting to be called into leadership in small ways, not as the leader. And thank goodness I didn't want to be the leader. I just really want to just be a contemplative, you know, like let me have my little cell. Uh, but but there were things that I was invited into. And within that was the slow formation of me of where is God found? Where is grace? Because I found that some of what I was invited into, uh, I needed to give a yes to that I didn't agree with. Mm -hmm. And 
And that slowly began to work on me. Like, what's the nature of grace here? Where is God speaking? How am I being faithful to myself? You know, I was called into those places just by going into solemn vows. And I didn't know it was working on me, but I can see that it was slowly, slowly the inner and the outer vow that were like this were slowly starting to go like this. And I was beginning to experience the inner vow. Since this is audio, Kimberly, um, people won't see your hand gestures when, (laughs) when you said it was going like this, but they were moving apart. Yes. But I didn't know that. I didn't know that. The 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 steps were so subtle and my inner autonomy was through through fire, through a lot of various challenges, was beginning to experience uh source or God or the beloved in a way that was not so married with the external of my vows and the container I was in. And then added to that, when I had the download to build the monastery and I ended up being the general contractor, I started to experience spirit moving through me, through my voice. And I was working with people and miracles were happening. It was so beautiful. I was very humbled by it, but there was very, it was very clear that there were certain gifts that had been being formed in me in the silence that were now free to be a catalyst through the use of voice. Again, something I never would have consciously said, oh, this is a gift. Maybe I should act on that gift. I never would have gone there. I was still so in vows, but these things were all happening. And I would say that that, that's how my, my, my being was being kind of dug up and tilled. And, and then through a lot of very dramatic things happening, great things and terrible things happening, there came a point when I had this inner illumination that seemed independent of everything Mm. and fill in it unsolicited. I was washed of my vows. Mm. They disappeared. I, I, I had this inner illumination and I was looking out at the world and I'm like, and I was still in habit. I'm not in vows anymore. It was, undeniable it was so and it was so simple uh was it did you feel when you realized in a sense that you had left your vows without being conscious of it was it uh a fear a frightening was it uh threatening or was it uh free at last free at last (laughs) (laughs) you know what's so funny is it was kind of neither Uh it was it was a little bit more um, mystifying because when I took vows, I could feel the energetic change in me. And I loved being in vows. I mean, if you read my book, I refer to my vows a lot as being an instrument of grace for me, for my transformation. When they were gone, it was almost like, I didn't know who I was. It was like, Mm. almost like this amorphous, like, who am I? what am I? I was walking around like that. And then there was a wise thing that arose in me. And I said, you know, I don't really know what this is. I'm going to wait. Mm. I'm not going to jump to a conclusion Mm. about what it is. And I was still building the monastery. So we were five months away from the dedication. So I waited and I finished the project 
And then I asked to go on a retreat and I went on a retreat in March. And it was during the retreat that very clear guidance happened in the silence. And part was internal and part was some external things like a a hawk who had a message and a, a number of really wonderful, consoling, very consoling messages that let me know that my next step was still in union with the divine. Mm-hmm. Now I think if I had any concern, that would be my only concern is, am I taking a step in union with the divine? And once I got all those confirmations, I was like, well, there is nothing else. I mean, I was changed by it. So there was really nothing to talk about or discern, or I couldn't have stayed. And it was so interesting because here I had built this beautiful monastery, like a monastery that any monastic would want to live in with little hermitages and beautiful stone and wood. And it's like this idyllic romantic monastery. And four weeks later, I'm like, I'm not meant to be here anymore. It was like, wow, I don't even get to enjoy this whole thing. I poured my whole heart and soul into. (laughs) That's fascinating. So the form was gone. The structure was gone. The exclusivity was gone because your path subsequent to that uh, is is multifaceted from what I can tell. Um, it's kind of, I was thinking of Thomas Merton when you were talking, you know, uh, he famously, uh, you know, was a very uh, multifaceted person spiritually, but you know, in his case, you know, re- remained in the monastery, but ventured far and wide from that uh, position um, before his untimely uh, passing. But um, s- since then, you've been functioning in various ways as a spiritual teacher, as a guide, as uh, helping others along the path, bringing what you've learned to them uh, to make it you know, simple. Um, how would you describe if someone said to you, uh, what do you teach Kimberly at a <laughs> dinner party or something like that? Or say, oh, you're a spiritual teacher. What does that mean? What do you, what is, what is your purpose at, in that capacity? How, how would you answer? Uh, first, I'm continuing to discover that. I'm finding life is teaching me that all along the way. And I would say at heart, I'm at the service of the awakening into presence. And that presence is a fullness of being. And I know it sounds like an abstract word, but I continue to experience that consciousness, which is a word that's a little more comfortable for me as the uncreated that we can't quite describe and we can only point to, that consciousness for some mysterious reason is coming into form and that we're part of that process. And at our very center, which doesn't have a location, we're pulsing this presence, this divinity, we're pulsing it. It is pulsing us, probably even more accurate. And I'm at the service of that. Uh, It's a very pathless path. And I would say that the ways I support that are through offering 
I was just reading one of Adi Ashanti's books, who's a, a sweet person and friend. He he shies away from the word teacher, even though teacher is an easier word to use. You know, he talks about some of the things that he's saying as strategies. So I would say that some of the things that I present are ways of inquiring that lead to deeper experiences of ourselves, where I believe answers can be found and practices that help us experience that part of ourselves that I say is a soul or is the essence of who we are. And as we, as we experience that and live from that place, life opens up to us. So am I a healer? Yes, I have a lot of healing gifts, but I don't approach things like that because I help people open to the healing that is already available to them by themselves. Um, am I a teacher? Yes. I mean, I love, I, you know, I'm a trained theologian. Now I don't get to really be in those realms so much because my scholasticism is at the service of experience, but I do love a really deep scholastic conversation that can delicately go into these uh, distinctions when we talk about spirituality and what it means to be alive and uh, all of that that goes into spirituality. So I think I'm all of those, but at heart, I'm a mystic adventurer who has a capacity to be where people truly are. Hmm. And in that way, I tend to be a friend in those deep places who brings presence and then it's mirrored or resonated by the person I'm with. In your so. experience, Kimberly, um, like me, you, you you come in contact with people from a variety of paths, uh, multi-ethnic probably, uh, different age groups. Um, what would you say is the biggest spiritual challenge that or challenges if you if there's more than one if there's a tie for you know first for second place what are, <laughs> what are people uh struggling with the most who 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 care about their spiritual lives it's a well i'm going to throw out an answer with the caveat that I, I tend to shy away from larger overarching answers yeah. because I, I really discover that everyone's path has such a uniqueness to it, mm -hmm. but I can hail almost like a mantra phrase that we hear so often. And, and you may align with too, is the, the illusion or not the illusion the experience and the complexity of what we call the challenge of feeling separate or believing mm. separate and all of the range of complexities that go into that, even the range of saying it's all one. And then you don't even have distinctions because there are distinctions. We have these paradoxes that we're constantly dissolving to come into places that are more sophisticated and I find most people are warring with some of these paradoxes, the good, the bad, the right, the wrong, the light, the dark, 
the individual, the collective, or the individual and the unitive. And it's in those series of seeming conundrums that I find individuals circle the most around because they're bringing unconscious beliefs. They're bringing unconscious trauma. They're bringing the fear of, uh, do I even exist? Like, I mean, these really deep unnamed things. So I, I would say that would be my collective answer. <laughs> well, very good. I, I would concur with a lot of that. I mean, I wrote a whole book about the paradoxes of uh, life on the spiritual path. Uh, and, and I didn't set out to write that book. And in the course of writing a book, I said, everything's a paradox here. So I reframed it. Um, but I think you're, that's very true. And, and the, uh, the, 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 a seeming conflict between being an individual and following the individuality of your path and also being part of community and needing companionship and so forth is a, is a big one, which brings me to um, your essence tribe. Right. What tell, tell us about that. <laughs> It's a budding online spiritual community, and it is my first step towards creating a style of community that is, I think, part of our new paradigm of what it means to be in like a living sangha. Uh, it's, it's set up with mystic meetings once a month where we do a meditation and we have a leading question and everyone shares their wisdom about it. It's almost like a Quaker style, but it's a little bit more of a, everyone contributes. I know in the Quaker, it's, it's more of like, if you feel moved, you contribute. Right. Uh, and, and therein we learn from each other and we discover safe ways to explore our truth. And then with that, and since it's so very new, I would say I'm still in a position where, uh, cause I, 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 I posed to the group, do we want to change how we're doing it? And then they're like, no, we still want you to do the talk. <laughs> so it's still at that kind of stage where I'm a, I'm a seating contributor. And then from there, everyone else is growing and finding their voice. And then we have immersions. We do a mystic immersion and then we do two deep meditation immersions. So we have three big collective things a year that total about three months. And then we have one weekly meeting. So that's pretty much it. There's some other little things. And my hope is that it would grow in such a way that it moves from online into local chapters. It's very small. It's like 30 people. But tribe.com. Yeah. If you're curious listeners. Um, and uh, so I commend you for trying to create some sense of community, be, you know, with people, uh, hungry for, for spiritual companionship and, and not always being able to find a uh, comfortable place to be. So many spiritual communities are, um, well, people experience as oppressive. And uh, <laughs> uh, so they, they leave. Tell us about your new book, whose <laughs> title intrigues me, Miracles in the Naked Light. You see it. She's holding it up for, uh, on the Zoom call here. I'm holding it up. But um, 
since most of you are just listening, you'll have to Google it. It's a very lovely cover, and but it's, it's a, an intriguing title. First, tell us about the title and then tell us about the book. Did you, we froze. Sure, it. so oh, you Miracles in the Naked Light. Uh, oh, good, good. All right, so the title is pointing to one of the foundational messages that I'm coming from. So the book is memoir-based, but it's not intended to land just on a, the storytelling part. There are deeper messages that I have discovered through my experience have some truth to them for me. And one of them is that everything is grace and that we are walking in a field that's fertile and ripe. It's naked. We're walking in this field of continuous grace-filled moments and instances, events, people, and everything. But what's what's interesting uh, with the title is that I, I had two influences with the naked light part because uh, I knew about the miracles part. And the first was I was taking a hike and I was listening to Sounds of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. Mm. And the phrase came on, and in the naked light I saw. And it it just, that phrase <laughs> is so potent for me. I knew it sounded familiar. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Oh, great, that's great. <laughs> and because when when we are awakening, and when we're in these moments of awakening, things have a certain luminosity to them. Even challenges, there's a certain there's a certain quality that we are interfacing with it in a place that is brimming with more possibility and and that's how i i feel life is it's brimming with this and th to dovetail with that there's a beautiful kabir poem that i love i love kabir mm. and uh he said i stand naked in the marketplace but nobody sees me mm. and that too points to it we oftentimes go through we're what 95 percent unconscious we tend to be pretty oblivious to the reality that we're walking in. And the awakening process is discovering right, right what is before our eyes. So that's where the, the title comes from. And in it, what part of the reason I use the story is because my story has so many layers to it. And it pulls you in pulls you away from the black and white way you want to look at things and pulls you into the intimate experience I was having in each of these instances where magnificent miracles were happening through the building project, where dramatic things were happening through the unhealed aspects of community. And you get, you get right into the, the young nun experiencing this from a place of everything is grace and how that works in very unexpected ways. It doesn't give answers in the ways we want answers. We want answers that free us up from, we want answers that make it super, so easy, right? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> and you'll see here that the answers are the dismantling of everything I knew. Like John of the Cross, a great Carmelite said, 
all I ever knew was destroyed. Mm. He said, deep in the wine vault, I drank. And when I came out into these open fields, I had lost the flock I used to have. He He lost everything. It points to, as we grow, the internal parts they're all, they all are lost. They're dissolved or destroyed or fade away or transmute. And that's a lot of what happens in the book in really down to earth ways, in ways that everybody can relate to. Do you, are you concerned when people see a title like that, that they'll be, um, it calls attention to the, the, uh, <laughs> or triggers the tendency to look for spectacular <laughs> events, miracles. <laughs> I, and I'm, I'm raising this because I run into you know, people who think, uh, you know, they're, they're searching for spiritual experience. Um, and in their minds that, that means something extraordinary, a vision, uh, you know, super normal powers of perception and uh, mind body over body experiences. Um, As you know, I, I wrote a biography of Yogananda and I'm teaching an online course as we speak on going through his autobiography of a yogi. And there's miracles and wild happenings and extraordinary powers throughout the book. And I've often noticed people have uh, different reactions to them. Are you concerned that by using the term miracle, people come to you or come to the book expecting the parting of the Red Sea (laughs) or... Or, you know, that they'll learn how to levitate or whatever. Uh, First, I understand that as human beings, we have a natural desire for ecstatic experience. There's something within us that it feels great when we're expansive. It feels great when we feel like we're at one with the sunset. I mean, it feels great to wake up with brimming joy and confidence in our calling. Those things feel great. And I know that there is a natural uh, desire then because it feels great that we pursue it. And I'm aware that part of that is what is a first step in the maturation process. Because as we awaken, it's not about that. But in a way, we need to touch in on those things, whether it's our desire for them, whether we're experiencing them. And in that, we come into contact with parts of ourselves that then can, if we're open and not resistant, learn that it's not about that. So in a way, if someone's drawn to that because they want their life to be miraculous, I love that they're going to come in and they're going to find difficulty in the book. I love that they're going to come in. There are some dramatic things. I mean, the fact that I built a 17,000 square foot monastery with no experience is dramatic. And, and, and people can look at that and say, well, I want to do that. 
but if they really read and and I'm I'm very intimate in sharing my inner workings, they're taken into a place where it's not that. They see that the awakening process is not that. And then therefore they can say, what is my monastery? Well, my monastery is being present with my two-year-old son, right? That's the, that's the awakening call to presence. I mean, so I'm not real concerned about people being like, oh, wow, I thought it was really going to help me do this. <laughs> uh, and if they're allured in by the, the word, uh, I want people to wrestle with those words mm. and, mm. and and disagree or uh, be called into the difficulty around it because it hits all sorts of trigger points. Because when you get those dramatic experiences, either either you're like, I want that too, or it could trigger incredible um, low self-worth. I'll never be like that. That's what spirituality is. I'll never. Mm. Why haven't I? What am I doing wrong? Yes. I have not experienced celestial light. Maybe I need to uh, do what Kimberly once did and spend 10 years in in a monastery and get away from all these distractions and uh, gross aspects of living life in a human form and and go (laughs) off into, well, most spiritual people, and including me at certain points in my life were, you know, said, you know, I want out of here. I just want to go live in a monastery or an ashram or, you know, whatever. Uh, I never went as far as wanting to be in a cave, but, um, to, to, you know, get away from the world as opposed to finding the divine where you are. Um, so what do you tell people when they have that kind of uh, inclination or thought? Yes, yeah. So I I always start, now I, I'm a very much a, a lover. <laughs> so that's part of my archetypal path. And uh, I like Yes, yes. First, I think it's very important to affirm certain qualities of the spiritual experience that are worthy to take as part of the path. So let's say somebody like because I was a nun, I I oftentimes am pulled into conversations of people who long to join a monastery. Mm hmm. It's like a norm. Gosh, lucky you, you know? And I'm like, that's great. Yeah. Cause it was my call, but you know, I encountered all of myself in the silence. Like, it's not like, it's not like a rose bed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's a yeah, rose yeah. bed with a lot of thorns in it. <laughs> but, <you know. laughs> um, but I think it's important to recognize what is, what, what is operative there that is life-giving mm. and then separate that out from the form or the inclination. So if someone's being moved because they're feeling a certain draw into silence, that's worthy of saying, wow, that's worthy for you to give attention to, to follow on. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're meant to run in that direction or run in this direction. And I think it's it's really, really helpful to have a spiritual companion or mentor or the word director, like I'm a formal trained director too. Uh, I don't like that word so much because you really don't direct, you presence 
what's arising. Uh, and then the person can come to the place of what it means for them. So if, if you're if you're listening to this and you're having these inclinations, what you want to do is draw close to what's what is the agency of what's happening so that you can understand what it means for you. And what it means for you is going to be very life-giving. It may mean staying right where you are, right in your present life situation, but then going about it differently. Mm -hmm. It may mean a career change, but these aren't things to jump to conclusions about. We overlay, you know, like you can have one real unitive experience and like, oh, that's it. I'm done with the world. You know, that kind of a, and if, if we want to walk the path of wisdom, we're going to see that that's a reaction more than a response. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So but the best way to do that is to discover it in conversation or in presencing with somebody that has some degree of experience. And and uh, use you as a role model, because before you said you made the smart decision to wait. You yes. didn't you didn't leap to uh, some uh, premature conclusion uh, about what your next step should be. Yeah, you know, there's a great story in the Hebrew text of Elijah. So Elijah is considered one of the founders of the Carmelite order. But Elijah, I won't go into his whole story. If you don't know him, it's it's worth a nice read to get to know him as a prophetic figure. He may have lived, he may not have lived, but he does represent a certain um, message around human development and growth. And later in his life, after he had performed these great miracles and then they didn't reap any fruit. The Israelites weren't coming back to the way that, you know, God wanted them to. And the whole story is Elijah goes into a place of deep, deep discouragement that in answering his call, was it all a waste? Mm -hmm. he ran into the desert and he was angry and he was discouraged and he was honest with himself because he'd had all these units of, he'd, he'd, he'd been the voice of God and the instrument of God. Well, the long short and the point answering to you that I love that I think complements what you just said is at a certain point, he's guided to go into a cave and God says, go into this cave and wait because I'm going to pass by. Hmm. And when he's there, he had come to such a place of being capable of hearing that when a dramatic earthquake went by, he knew God wasn't in the earthquake. And when a dramatic fire went by, he knew God wasn't in the fire. When a dramatic wind, I'm probably getting the, the, the metaphors wrong, but there are three dramatic nature things go by and they were all dramatic which can happen when we have a unitive experience. It's dramatic. Like we're like, oh, this is it. And he knew God wasn't in those. And at the very end, a whisper, a breezy <laughs> whisper goes, and he covers his face. Oh, now I have seen God. And that's what I think we're called to when we have these experiences. It's, it's in the whisper. We become capable of hearing the whisper in the center of our being. That's not dramatic. It's, it's, it's uh, light. <laughs> uh, with, uh, you just put me in mind of um, something attributed to Rumi, 
but also attributed to uh, Father Thomas Keating, uh, who said that the, the, the voice of God is silence and everything else is a bad translation. Um, oh, I love that. Yes. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially <laughs> it. Um, Kimberly, uh, we're, we're recording this in the middle of November, just a week before Thanksgiving in 2023. The world is aflame. There's wars going on. There's, de- there's horrible suffering. Uh, political turmoil and ominous uh, portents, if you, to use biblical terms. Um, you're it, working with people who are deeply uh, drawn to the inner life and to spiritual awakening and realization. Um, at the same time, we're all living in the world, and there's a lot of to disturb our tranquility. Um, how are you, what advice are you do you have for people who who don't want to ignore what's going on, but don't want it to overwhelm them either? Uh, and the, this this is such a great question and probably a very difficult one for me to give a universal answer to. Yeah. Uh, but I think there'd be two facets to my answer. The first is remembering that we have many, many great writings that repeat through many traditions. If you want peace in the world, start with peace within yourself. That We, we constantly get those adages, if you will, through mm-hmm. many traditions. And I think it's worthy to take that seriously simultaneously recognizing that our world is shouting a message. It's almost like John the Baptist, a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. I mean, you don't have to believe in the Lord, mm. but there, but there was a shout, there was a call out. It's like, come on, let's wake up. And I would say that people are being agitated by all of these things, because there is a, there's a certain wake up call happening. Mm. And so it's got those both facets that I think are imperative for us to address and to answer and to get real about, to get real about. Uh, There are many practical things we can do about that. It's one of the reasons I formed the summit is that it's all about discovering self and people always say, Oh, that's kind of only an inward thing. Well, yes, it is. But it is also anchored in like the more I discover this self, me, self, the more I discover self, capital S, and the more then I find myself with availability to the guidance of what I'm meant to do to navigate a very difficult situation. Because it's not only complex, it's complicated. And there aren't easy answers. Our systems that were fragmented already are breaking down. Uh, we're, we're still circling around, you know, possessions around fear. I mean, there's kind of like collective fear infecting people, you know, like being like venom. It's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and even moving us away from freedom with using our intelligence, you know, this deep emotional 
fear um, is, is, is affecting all parts of us. So I would say it's twofold like that. But what I am finding a response that's important to is it's important. It's not not important. It's important. And if every person would say, wow, my tending this right now is very important. I believe change can come about uh, more collectively. Thank you for that. And thanks for um, making the segue to the summit uh, for me. Uh, In the few minutes that we have, you have uh, organized um, a two or three day online event called Discovering Self. You were uh, kind enough to invite me to be one of the participants, presenters. There's others uh, who um, are very, uh, who have a lot to offer, represented. What what moved you to organize this? It's, it's coming up in uh, January of 2024. So listeners, uh, make a note, um, Discovering Self Summit. And uh, tell us about it, Kimberly, what made you do it and what people can expect. Yes. Uh, part of it's my natural love of creating events and gatherings and providing opportunities for people to go deeper in easy ways. So that was my big motivator. And the topic I think is a pertinent one, an imperative one right now. So uh, it was that simple in organizing it. And I am blessed in not including myself. There are 10 contributors coming from a wide variety of angles on this topic. And I specifically did that. I did not want to shine subtle lights all from one perspective. Mm -hmm. I wanted a wide range so that we could see that this discovery of self can happen in so many different ways. We've got quantum human design. We've got um, collective healing trauma of shame. We've got uh, philosophical inquiry. We've got tantric Buddhist exploratory practices. So there's going to be a tapestry and a banquet of a wide variety of ways, and it's going to be super easy to participate. So um, there will be live group practices, breakout sessions, uh, live insight talks. There'll be some pre-recorded talks, and this will all weave in with some contemplative practice. And with it, you can attend part of it, or you can attend all of it. It's all professionally recorded, and you're going to have copies of it all if you choose to attend, so you can reflect back because. I can tell you this, that everybody that I've, I've now had, like I did with Phil, an insight talk with, the value is great. It, 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 it really shines a light and makes it possible to say yes to yourself in a new way or in a way that builds upon your self-discovery in new, refreshing ways. So I'm excited about January 5th through 7th start on a Friday night and on a Saturday and Sunday afternoon. And you can email me with any questions. And people can uh, come and go they, right. uh, if they have other commitments. It's the first week, first weekend in January. Uh, so a great way to uh, start the new year and to uh, give uh, life to the new year's resolutions. You've probably already violated. 
<laughs> and uh, uh, how do they find information? Sure. So on my website, KimberlyBraun.com, you'll see an events tab and it's right there under the events tab. Okay. And it'll be posted on uh, this page that this interview is on uh, at mindbodyspirit.fm. And if you register uh, where it says um, something about affiliate, uh, yeah. put in spirit matters. So Kimberly knows you, you heard her on this uh, broadcast. And um, thank you, Kimberly, for all that you do and for this great conversation. Listeners, uh, once again, it's KimberlyBraun.com, also EssenceTribe.com. Um, take full advantage of Kimberly's books her, and her online events. And uh, tell your friends about the podcast. Email me with suggestions if you have any, if you have people you think I should interview. Uh, go to my website, philipgoldberg.com. Check out Get on my mailing list and so you know what I'm up to. And um, have a good week, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again, Kimberly. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.